inequity. So at common law, if contract is deemed to be void, then the party is able to, well, it's as if the contract had never existed, and the innocent party is able to claim damages. And in relation to misrepresentation, the contract is voidable, which means the contract is valid until it has been avoided. And in those circumstances, the person's innocent party may avail themselves of rescission or rectification. Or damages which is monetary compensation for loss suffered. So now we are interested in establishing how do we bring the contract to an end if none of those are present. And that essentially is what discharge of contract is about and there are four ways by which the rights and obligations of the parties to a contract may come to an end. Performance, agreement, frustration, and breach. Those are the four ways. And we will look at each of them in turn. So in relation to performance, a person who performs a contract in accordance with its terms is discharged from any further obligations. And you remember when we looked at the elements of contract that we looked at of an acceptance, we said that for acceptance to be valid, it must mirror the offer, mirror image of the offer. So in the case of discharge of contract by performance the general rule is that the performance must mirror the obligations of the contract and once all those obligations are satisfied then the contract is discharged it comes to an end without any question of liability being raised and this performance must be exact I also made the general observation that to properly appreciate the law and how it functions it is a series of rules and presumptions there are general rules and there are exceptions to the general rules. There are presumptions and the presumptions can be rebutted. So you must always be asking yourself the question, what is the general rule in this area of law? And related to that question is what are the exceptions, if any, and whether it is a general rule that applies in the circumstances or it is the exception to the general rule that applies. Similarly, what is the presumption here? What 
presumption is the lawmaking. And is this presumption established or is it rebutted? And that will lead you to the answer you seek. So, if the obligation is to pay money, exactly the right amount of money must be tendered. And I like to use the example of people boarding a bus because we use this when we're looking at offer and acceptance and asking questions where the contract is formed. And we have decided that when you enter the bus and you pay the fare, that is when the contract is formed. But the there's usually a notice that says you must have your exact fear, right? And that's an example of performance of the contract. So when you get on the bus and you pay your exact fear, then you have discharged your obligation. So offering a $20 note for a $10 debt will not discharge your contract as it is not reasonable to compel the other party to provide change. If, however, he or she does provide change without objection, the contract is discharged. If the debtor pays a check, the debt will not be discharged until the check is, is honored. If a person is obligated to deliver goods, the goods must be delivered at a reasonable hour, not, for example, in the middle of the night. So these are examples in terms of what to expect when we talk about performance in a contractual context. The goods must also comply exactly with the contract terms. So if the seller tenders too few goods, too many goods, or the right amount of goods mixed with other goods, the buyer may reject all of them because performance is not exact. And that is the general rule. For a contract to be discharged by performance, the performance must be exact in relation to the terms of the contract. It must be specific. It must mirror the obligations. The same applies if the goods are not packed in accordance with the contract. So in Remore and Launderer, a supplier of tin fruit agreed to supply the goods in cans containing 30 tins each. When he delivered the goods, about one half were packed in cases of 24 tins each. Correct total amount of things were delivered and the market value of the goods supplied was unaffected. However, there was a breach of contract as this and this entitled the buyer to reject the whole consignment because they specified 30 tins per box. Many contracts state the order in which the parties must perform their obligations. And an example here, if Jones agrees to work for James for $300 per week, and it is payable in arrears, 
James need not pay Jones until Jones has done the week's work. So, what we have just described is the general rule as it relates to bringing a contract to an end on the basis of performance. And the general rule, simply put, is that performance must be exact, it must be precise, it must mirror the terms of the contract. Having said that, there are several exceptions to this general rule. And we are now going to look at those exceptions. So the exceptions to the general rule, one, several contracts, two, acceptance of part performance, three, prevention of performance, four, substantial performance, five, time of performance, and there's also the tender of performance. And we take them in turn. Several contracts. So where a contract may be divided into several parts, and that is what we mean by several contracts. Payments for parts that have been completed can be claimed. Whether a contract is severable or not depends on the intention of the parties. So there you go with the magic word again, intention, right? Very important ingredient in contract formation. In the absence of evidence as to intention, the courts are reluctant to construe the contract so as to require complete performance before any payment becomes due. In Roberts and Havelock, 1832, plaintiff agreed to repair a ship. Contract did not state when the payment was to be made. It was held that the plaintiff was not bound to complete repairs before claiming some payment. So that's an example. Massive job repairing the ship. There was no evidence that there was an intention for this contract to be severable, but the courts, in their wisdom, felt that it would not be fair if some payment was not made based on work already done. Acceptance of part performance. So where X has accepted the partial performance of Y, having an option to reject promise to pay is implied and a quantum merit may be claimed by Y. A quantum merit action is a claim for a percentage of the contract price in direct proportion to percentage of the work done. So that's the definition of what quantum merit is and this is a remedy that is available if the contract is not fulfilled in its totality. And quantum merit is a Latin phrase and translate into uh, proportionate payment or part payment or payment for uh, percentage of the work that has been done. Acceptance of part performance 
case of Sumpeter and Sumpter and Hedges. 1898, the plaintiff agreed to build a house for the defendant for £565. He partially erected the building, doing work to the value of £333. He then stopped the job because he ran out of funds. Defendant using the plaintiff's material that had been left on the site, finished the job himself. Plaintiff claimed £333 for the work done plus the value of his material used by the defendant. He failed in his claim for the £333 because although the defendant had accepted the plaintiff's part performance, the defendant had no option to reject. And remember, critical part of part performance is that the other party who would be undone by the incomplete performance or the incomplete execution of the contract, they must have the opportunity to reject. And here, the court is saying that the person couldn't reject a half-built house. Because what it would mean is that you'd have to demolish the house. And that would really put you in a worse position than you were with the half-built house. So it's impossible to reject a half-built house since the status quo cannot be restored. The plaintiff, however, obtained judgment in respect of his materials that the defendant had used to complete the house. So remember what we're looking at is the exception to the general rule about performance bringing a contract or discharging a contract. So we're now looking at prevention of performance. Where one party is prevented by the other from completing the contract, he may bring a quantum merit action to claim for work done. So we looked at acceptance of part performance and now prevention of performance and both of them the remedy there is quantum quantum merit claim. So in Palanch and Colburn, 1831, plaintiff agreed to write a book on costume and armor, which was to appear in serial form in the defendant's periodical. Plaintiff was to be paid £100 on completion, after the plaintiff had done some research and written some of the book, but before he had completed it, the defendant stopped publishing the periodical. It was held that the plaintiff had been wrongfully prevented from forming the contract and he was entitled to a quantum merit. Substantial performance. So where a contract has been substantially performed, an action lies for the contract price, less a reduction for deficiencies. This exception only applies when the defect relates to the quality of performance. And this should not strike you as odd because we said that quality does not vitiate a contract. It is the exception to the rule relating to mistake. 
if the defect concerns quantity, for example, of goods supplied, the general rule applies, which means you can reject the goods. It's a breach of contract, and you would be entitled to reject the goods. Case illustrating this point is Honig and Isaacs, 1952. Plaintiff agreed to decorate and furnish defendant's flat for £750. Furniture had several defects which could have been made good for £55. Defendant argued that the plaintiff was only entitled to reasonable remuneration for work done under the contract. The court, however, held that the plaintiff was entitled to the full contract rate less the cost of making the defects good since he had substantially performed the contract. So here the remedy is different. Another case illustrating the effect of substantial performance is Bolton and Mahadeva. A plumber agreed to install a central heating system for £560. His work was defective in that the system did not heat adequately and it gave off fumes. The defect cost £174 to repair. The plumber failed in his action to recover the price lesser reduction of £174 since he could not be said to have substantially performed the contract. He therefore recovered nothing and the defendant got a £560 heating system for £174. The decision in the Bolton case may seem unfair, however, the court was must draw a line so as not to encourage bad workmanship. It must also be unfair to allow every workman who did not complete a job to be paid pro rata for work done. I believe that is pretty straightforward. So the point is not in every instance that you will find that there will be compensation for substantial performance or indeed part performance if that work is of very shoddy or questionable uh, quality. That brings us to time of performance. And remember again what we are looking at is the exception to general rule that performance of the obligations of the contract precisely and exactly will bring about the discharge or the end of that contract without any liability. Now, at common law, a party who failed to perform his obligations within a given time was in breach of contract. 
equitable rule which now prevails is that time is only of the essence of the contract. If one party is expressed state or if to a party who has been guilty of undue delay is notified by the other party that unless he performs within a reasonable time the contract will be regarded as broken where an obligation under a contract is to deliver goods or render services tender of goods or services which is refused discharges the party tendering from further obligations and entitles him to damages for breach so this is another exception to the rule. So we look at time of performance, which we would have met already when we spoke about express terms, when we spoke about condition versus warranty. And what we said was that in relation to time, time is usually a warranty, but if you see time is of the essence of the contract expressly stated in the contract, then you know that uh, time in that circumstance is a uh, condition. So tender of performance and that has to do with how the contract is paid. So where money is tendered it must be legal tender and it must be the exact sum. We opened with that in terms of examples illustrating performance and we're still dealing with performance even though we're dealing with the exceptions to performance. So if such a tender is refused, it does not release the debtor from his obligation to pay. But if sued, he may pay the money into court and the creditor will have to pay the cost of the action. That's the cost of the lawsuit. If the debtor sends money in the post and it is lost, he will have to pay again unless... One, the mode of delivery was requested by the creditor. And two, the debtor took reasonable care. Tender of performance, appropriation of payments. When a debtor makes a payment to his creditor, which is insufficient to discharge all outstanding amounts, the payment is appropriated as follows. One, the debtor may tell the creditor which debt or debts should be discharged by the payment. Two, if the debtor does not do this, then the creditor may appropriate the payments to debts as he chooses, including statute barred debts, right? Which are bad debts or debts that can't be sued on for recovery. Three, if the debtor pays the amount, the exact amount of a particular debt, it is presumed that the payment is in discharge of the debt of that amount. Four, if there is a current account, it is presumed that the payments are appropriated to the oldest debt first. And that concludes the segment on performance as a way of discharging contract we now move to the second way that a contract may be discharged which is agreement what has been created by agreement can be extinguished by agreement and this is the general rule an agreement to discharge a contract is binding only if it is by deed and when we say by deed we are speaking that it is in writing and sealed or if it is supported by consideration. So going back now to 
are the basics. It is not necessary for this type of agreement to be reached by means of an offer from one party which is accepted by the other. The legal position depends on whether the discharge is bilateral or unilateral. Consideration raises no difficulty if contract is to be if the contract to be extinguished is still executory. And again you would remember executory consideration, which means that there are two promises but no one has acted upon the promise. So in such a case, each party agrees to release his rights under the contract in consideration of a similar release by the other. The discharge in such a case is bilateral for each party surrenders something of value. The position is different where the contract to be extinguished is wholly executed on one side. So what we're speaking about here now is executed consideration and both of these are good consideration and an example here where a seller has delivered goods but the buyer has not paid that is executory consideration here the seller has performed his part and if he were merely to agree that the contract should be discharged the buyer should be released from his obligation or of payment he would receive nothing of value in exchange and he there could equally be she. Now, the buyer would have neither suffered a detriment himself or herself nor have conferred an advantage upon the seller but would be in a position of a doni. That means they would have got a gift. This is a unilateral discharge and is ineffective unless made under seal. Must be written, must be sealed, or unless some valuable consideration is given by the buyer. Unilateral discharge. Unilateral discharge in return for consideration is often called accord and satisfaction. The accord is the agreement for the discharge of the original contract and the satisfaction is the consideration conferred upon the party who has performed his or her obligation. Bilateral discharge. This form of discharge is available to the parties whether their contract is either wholly executory or partly executory on both sides. Both sides have obligations outstanding. So remember, promise is made, but no action has been taken. So they are essentially surrendering both their promises. Contract for the sale of goods where there has been no delivery and no payment. That's the example. The consideration requirement is automatically present since both parties will surrender something of value. And here, consideration and satisfaction are the same thing. Accord and agreement are the same thing. The right to insist on the, other's part, the other party's performance. Cases of waiver, that is forbearance. So the right to insist on performance at the agreed time fall within the principle of equitable estapel established in Central London Property Trust and High Trees House 
um, case. And this is where um, Lisa Flats and the intervening war, we looked at this case already, where we spoke about the doctrine of equitable estopel. So here again, something that would have learned previously is now reinserting itself in the context of discharge of contract. And that is why I'm saying why we have compartmentalized the um, contract into these segments, it is really a, a whole that is interrelated and interwoven. Therefore, a voluntary concession granted by one party upon which the other has acted remains effective. That is binding on the promissor until it is made clear by reasonable notice that the strict obligations of the contract are to be restored. And you can look at Williams and Ruffy. So the point here is that if the person who has a strict legal right says to the party that is that owes the obligation that I'm not going to enforce my strict legal rights if you do X and then that party does X and the party with the strict legal right then now attempts to enforce their strict legal right then they are going to be stopped from so doing but the point is though that those strict legal rights are not extinguished they are simply suspended and if the circumstances under which they were prepared to not enforce their strict legal rights have changed then those strict legal rights can be enforced so unilateral discharge a contract which has been performed by A but has not been performed by the other party B may be the subject of unilateral discharge so here one party has executed their consideration the other party hasn't so where one party has completely performed his side of the contract any release by him of the other party must be by deed so again must be in writing and under seal or supported by fresh consideration either of the two where there is a release supported by fresh consideration, there is said to be accord and satisfaction. So there's an agreement and satisfaction, even though that agreement may not necessarily be in writing. The accord is the agreement by which the obligation is discharged. Satisfaction is the consideration which makes the agreement effective. Satisfaction may be executory or it may be executed. If, for instance, $50 is due for goods sold and delivered, a promise by the seller to accept a cash payment of $45 in discharge of the buyer's obligation is not a good accord and satisfaction. Since the buyer is relieved of a liability to pay $5 without giving or promising anything in return. A promise by the buyer, however, to confer upon the seller some immediate benefit, actual or contingent, may constitute sufficient consideration for acceptance of the smaller sum. Thus, in 1602, it was said that the gift of a horse hawk or a robe 
would suffice since it would not have been accepted by the creditor had it not been more beneficial to him than the money. So the idea is that it could be some token gesture which is of value to the party that is releasing their strict um, legal rights. Similarly, a promise by the debtor to pay a smaller sum at a at an earlier date than that on which it is contractually due or to pay a larger sum at a later date is a good accord and satisfaction if accepted by the creditor. Novation. A contract may also be discharged by novation. For example, A owes B $100 and B owes C $100, A agrees to pay C if C will release B from his obligation to pay him. All three parties must agree. And in Jamaican parlance, we would say that it squits out. Condition precedent. A contract may also be discharged by agreement if a clause in the contract provides for its discharge if a particular event occurs in the future that is subsequent to the formation of the contract. <coughs> Beg your pardon. So that concludes discharge by agreement. So we have now concluded two ways in which a contract may be brought to an end, contract may be discharged, performance and agreement. Are there any questions? So that brings us to the third way in which a contract may be discharged and that is by frustration. So after the parties have made their agreement, unforeseen contingencies may occur which prevent the attainment of the purpose they had in mind. The question is whether this discharges them from, their, from further liability. And here we go again with the general rule. The general rule is that if a person 
contracts lose something he is not discharged if performance proves to be impossible and that general rule is found in the case of paradigm and j 1647 a tenant who was sued for rent pleaded that he had been dispossessed of the land for the last three years by the king's enemies and his plea failed It was said, when a party by his own contract creates a duty or charge upon himself, he is bound to make it good, notwithstanding any accident by inevitable necessity because he might have provided against it by his conduct. So, that again is a restatement of the general rule using the judge's word. So the point here is that once you enter into a contract, you are obligated to perform all the terms of the contract. And it doesn't matter if performance proves impossible. Now, this severe rule is mitigated by the doctrine of frustration, which if it is applied automatically discharges the contract in an if an event is to frustrate a contract it must fall into any of these four categories one not contemplated by the parties two one which makes the contract fundamentally different from the original contract three one for which neither party was responsible for one which results in a situation to which the parties did not wish to be originally bound so what are the circumstances that give rise to frustration frustration occurs in the whole basis of the con if the whole basis of the contract is the continued existence of specific thing which is destroyed so in the case of Taylor and Caldwell 1863 the defendant contracted to let a music hall to the plaintiff for four days for the first day the music hall was accidentally burnt down the plaintiff claimed damages but it was held that the defendant was discharged from his obligation when the music hall was burnt down contract was frustrated frustration occurs if either party to a contract of personal services dies becomes seriously ill or is called up for military service in Cagnor and Baron Nights 1966 the plaintiff was the drummer in a pop group owing to illness he was forbidden by the doctor from performing more than a few nights there was no compensation since the nature of the work required him to be present seven nights a week the contract was there to be frustrated so the point is that if a contract is deemed to be frustrated it will release the parties of liability or of any obligation going forward 
Frustration occurs if the whole basis of the contract is the occurrence of an event which does not occur. So, an important case here is Krell and Henry, 1903. The defendant hired a flat in Paul Mall for the purpose of viewing the coronation process or procession of Edward VII, although this was not expressly stated in the contract. He paid £25 at the time of the agreement and was to pay a further £50 two days before the procession was to take place. Before the £50 had been paid, the procession was cancelled due to the illness of the king. The contract was held to be frustrated. Performance was not physically impossible, but the court said that the frustration was not limited to such cases, but included the cessation or non-existence of an express condition or state of things going to the root of the contract and essential to its performance. And that language there mirrors what a condition is, which we say is a vital term of the contract going to the root of the contract, breach of which entitles the innocent party to repudiate the contract and to sue for damages. Except in the case of frustration, no one can sue for damages here. There is no recovery. The plaintiff's claim for the balance of £50 therefore failed, as did the defendant's counterclaim for the return of his £25 already paid. So they had to cut their losses and move on. Similar, a case on similar facts, Hearn Bay Steamboat Co. and Hutton 1903. A boat was hired for the purpose of viewing the naval review and for a day's cruise round the reef, the fleet. The review was to form part of Edward VII's coronation celebrations, but it was cancelled due to his illness. The fleet was, however, still assembled. The contract was not frustrated. Since it was construed merely as a contract for the hire of a boat, which could still be performed even when one of the motives of the hirer was defeated, the two cases are difficult to reconcile. Some may say, however, in a passage in one of the judgment from Krell and Henry. It was stated that a contract for the hire of a cab to go to Epson on Derby Day would not be frustrated if the Derby was cancelled. The contract would be construed as one to get the passenger to Epson and not to the Derby. In Krell and Henry, the contract was not construed as one merely to provide a flat, since it was extremely unusual for flats to be let by the day for very high rates. Contracts to carry passengers to Epson are, however, often made on days other than Derby days. Frustration occurs if the government prohibits performance of the contract for so long that to maintain it would impose on the parties fundamentally different obligations from those bargained for. And this is now another circumstance under which frustration could be successfully raised. So all we have been looking at is the circumstances, situations in which frustration can be raised.
all the circumstances are relevant. For example, both the duration of the contract and the duration of the interruption. A ship, and this case here is Tamlin Steam Ship Co. and Anglo-Mexican Patrol 1960. A ship was requisitioned by the government for use as a troop ship. Charter party under which the ship was hired was for five years and there were 19 months left to run. The owners claimed that the contract was frustrated so, they, so that they and not the hirers would obtain the government compensation which exceeded what they would receive under the charter party. It was held that the contract was not frustrated since there may have been months during the remaining period during which the ship would be available and because the charterers were still prepared to pay the, pay the agreed price. Frustration occurs if the performance of the main object of the contract subsequently becomes illegal and remember that when we looked at vitiating factors we looked at illegality as a vitiating factor and that of course would render that contract unenforceable. So in Bailey and the Cripsney, 1869, a landlord covenanted to that neither he nor his successor in title would permit building on a paddock which adjoined the land let. The paddock was then compulsory acquired for a railway and a station was built. It was held that the landlord was not liable for breach of the covenant because it was impossible for him to secure the performance of it. So, having defined what frustration is, having looked at the circumstances when frustration may be raised, as well as when it is unlikely to be successful, and granted these circumstances are not exhaustive, we now look at the limits of the doctrine of frustration. So it is not absolute. A contract is not frustrated if it becomes unexpectedly more expensive or burdensome to one of the parties. So if the contract is to be discharged, performance must become radically different. Davis Contractors and Farham UDC 1956 plaintiff agreed to build 78 houses at a price of 94,000 pounds in 8 months. Labor shortages caused the work to take 22 months at a cost to the plaintiff of 115,000 pounds. Plaintiff wished to claim that the contract was frustrated so that they could then claim for their work on a quantum merit basis. It was held that hardship, material loss, or inconvenience did not amount to frustration. The obligation must change such that the thing undertaken would, if performed, be a different thing from that contracted for. 
a party cannot rely on a self-induced frustration that is frustration due to his or her own conduct. The doctrine does not protect a person whose breach, own breach is the actual frustrating event. A charter in this case now is the Eugenia, 1964. A charter in breach of contract ordered a ship into a war zone. Ship was detailed. It was held that the charterer could not rely on the detention as a grounds or ground for frustration. So we continue to look at the limits to the doctrine. As a scenario, deliberate failure to perform a condition precedent may not amount to a self-induced frustration. So what we have looked at is what is self-induced frustration. So we know that um, as a general rule, self-induced events that create frustration would not uh, in fact frustrate the contract but there are circumstances when the person may be, may be deliberate in not performing a condition precedent and at the same time it does not amount to self-induced frustration So, in this situation, every case will have to be considered on its own merit. The case here is Gillenhammer and Sauerbrug de Novena Industriala, 1989. So, the parties had an online agreement outline agreement for the construction of a bulk carrier the contract was subject to several condition precedents that is conditions that had to be complied with before the contract could be regarded as valid that's what a condition precedent is one of these provided that the contract would be void if the shipbuilder did not obtain a bank guarantee. When it appeared that a change in economic climate would render the building uneconomic, shipbuilders did not seek the relevant guarantees. They then argued that their absence rendered the contract void. The purchasers claimed that it was not open to the other party to frustrate the inception of the contract by failing to take steps to allow condition precedents to be fulfilled. So they are basically arguing that yes, they economic situation might not be the best but you must still apply to the bank let the bank turn it out the court held that this was not the case and the court said no this is not self-induced frustration it just never make business sense it was clear that there would be no contract in the absence of the bank guarantees and that their absence could be pleaded by the shipbuilders whatever the reason for that absence
it is probable that negligence will prevent the party from successfully claiming frustration and this is related to uh, the fact that self-induced frustration uh, will not be successful or is unlikely to be successful. So in the case of Taylor and Caldwell that we saw earlier, 1863, where the musical was rented and then accidentally burnt down and the contract was frustrated, if that fire had been started due to the negligence of the defendant, then their plea of frustration would have failed. Frustration will not apply where the parties have expressly provided for a contingency which had been which which has occurred. And this is important. So remember, frustration is not acts of God or force majeure. These are unforeseen circumstances that you have not planned for. You didn't put any contingency in for. And if you have put a contingency in for them and that contingency has occurred, you can then claim frustration because you have foreseen it and therefore you have planned for it. It means it is a means by which risk is allocated and loss apportioned in circumstances which neither party has foreseen. And this is frustration. What are the effects of frustration? contract is discharged automatically as to the future but it is not void from the beginning so the contract was valid to start with but since the frustrating event then it is no longer um, a feasible contract at common law the loss lay where it fell that is money paid before the frustration could not be recovered and we saw that in Krell and Henry and money payable before the frustration remained payable unless there was a total failure of consideration and again in Krell and Henry there was a total failure of consideration so the 50 pounds could not be recovered because the king was sick and the reason for renting flat was no longer there in Fibrosa and Fairburn 1942 a purchaser of machinery for £4,800 paid £1,000 on placing the order. Machinery was to be delivered in Poland shortly after the contract was made. War broke out and Poland was occupied by Germany. It was therefore impossible to deliver the machinery. plaintiff succeeded in his action to recover the £1,000 since he had received absolutely nothing in return for his thousand pounds. So in that case there was a total failure of consideration. And there we go back again to the basic element of contract formation, the presence or absence of um, consideration as one of the central elements. Now that doctrine of frustration that we just looked at would be the common law regime and there is now the statutory regime which is found in the law reform frustrated contracts act of 1958 so the position is now governed by the law reform frustrated contracts act 1958 whereby 
money paid before the frustrating event is recoverable and money payable before the frustrating event ceases to be payable but if one party has incurred expenses the court may allow him or her to retain or be paid an amount not exceeding the amount of the expenses if one party has obtained a valuable benefit other than money because of something done by the other party in performance of the contract he can be ordered to pay a just sum for it, not exceeding the amount of the benefit. So that concludes the third way in which a contract can be discharged. That brings us now to the fourth way a contract can be discharged. And that is by way of breach. A breach occurs if a party fails to perform one of his obligations under a contract. He does not perform on the agreed date or he delivers goods of inferior quality or in anticipator breach if a party before the date fixed for the performance indicates that he will not perform on the agreed date so that's anticipator breach so you know that the contract start on April 1 or March 31st for those who are afraid of all foods day but then you signal that you're not bothering with it that is anticipator breach What is the effect of a breach? Whether it is breach or anticipatory breach. A breach does not automatically discharge the contract and this should not come as a surprise to anybody. Breach of warranty entitles the innocent party to damages. So it depends on which term you have breached. Breach of condition entitles the innocent party to damages and gives him the option to treat the contract as subsisting or discharged. And by subsisting we mean continuing. So the innocent party can choose to affirm the breach. So if the innocent party elects to treat the contract as still subsisting and can complete his side without the cooperation of the other he is entitled to do so and to claim the whole sum due under the contract. White and Carter counsels and McGregor. Plaintiff agreed to advertise the defendant's business for three years on plates attached to litter bins. The defendant repudiated the contract on the same day it was made. The plaintiff nevertheless manufactured and displayed the plates as originally agreed and claimed the full amount due to the due under the contract. And this case went all the way to the House of Lords that upheld the claim. Their reason being that a repudiation does not of itself bring the contract to an end. Its effect is to give the innocent party a choice of whether or not to determine the contract. If he chooses to affirm the contract, it remains in full force. And if we go back to the principles of, of an acceptance, remember what we have said is that you must accept whilst the offer 
is life. Termination. If the innocent party elects to end the contract, it he is not bound to accept for the four months and may sue for damages at once. Where there is an anticipatory breach and the innocent party elects to treat the contract as discharged, he can sue for damages at once, immediately. In Oxter and De La Tour, the defendant agreed to employ as a courier for three months commencing on June 1, agreed to employment. Before this date, the defendant told the plaintiff that his services would not be required. This was held to be an anticipatory breach of contract and it entitled the plaintiff to sue for damages immediately. Avery and Bowden. If the innocent party elects to treat the contract as still subsisting, he keeps it alive for the benefit of both parties so that frustration may intervene to release the party at fault from further liability. So here now, there is an intersection between anticipatory breach, affirmation of that breach, and frustration. So in Avrian Bowden, defendant chartered a ship from the plaintiff to carry goods to Odessa. Charter allowed 45 days for loading. During this period, the defendant's agent told the captain, the plaintiff's agent, that he had no cargo and that it was wise to leave. The captain, however, remained in Odessa and pressed for performance. Before the 45 days had expired, the Crimean War broke out and frustrated the contract. If the plaintiff had accepted the anticipated breach immediately, he could have sued for damages. Since he did not do so, he kept the contract alive for the benefit of both parties, so the frustration operated to relieve the defendants from liability. Right? So, I believe that is pretty straightforward. Is anybody not clear? So the plaintiff's claim for damages failed. The doctrine of anticipatory breach is important because it helps to minimize the total loss. If the plaintiff could not sue immediately, he would be more likely to be to keep himself or herself available for performance since he or she may sue at once he or she has an incentive to abandon the contract and avoid the extra loss that he or she may suffer if he or she waits. It protects a person who has paid in advance for future performance. It would be unfair if such a person could not sue until the time fixed for performance, since his or her advance payment may have reduced his or her ability to make an alternative contract. So what we're speaking about there is opportunity cost. That is why anticipatory breach is, in, is, is of value. So if people can have people hanging on, they don't know whether they're coming or they're going, they might have put down a deposit, waste them time, tie up their money, and another opportunity comes and it 
passes them by, then you sue them for anticipatory breach. Protects a person who has paid in advance for future performance. So it would be unfair if such a person could not sue until the time fixed for performance. Installment contracts. If in an installment contract there is a breach with regard to one or some installments, the main test as to whether the breach entitles the innocent party to treat the contract as at an end are the ratio that the breach bears to the contract as a whole and the degree of probability that the breach will be repeated. So in Maple Flock Co. and Universal Furniture Products, the contract provided for 100 tons of rag flock to be delivered in installments of one and a half tons at a rate of three installments a week. Sixteenth installment was defective and the buyers claim to be entitled to rescind. Their claim failed mainly because the single installment was a small quantity when compared with the contract as a whole. So that now brings us to the question of remedies for breach of contract and remedies generally. Remedies, there are both common law and equitable remedies for breach of contract. <coughs> common law remedies, which you have met. Damages, and we say this is monetary compensation for loss suffered. An action for an agreed sum and a quantum merit claim, and you have met quantum merit claim just now. Equitable remedies. I will see the list there, specific performance, which you have met, injunction, you have met, precision, you have met, and rectification, which you have also met. The most commonly sought remedy is damages. Note, damage, without the S, is loss suffered by the plaintiff. Damages, with the S, are financial compensation awarded to that person? Yes, there's a hand up. Um, sir, I'm just wondering, quantum merit is basically monetary um, compensation. So, what's the difference between that and damages? Quantum merit is part payment on a prorated basis. Okay, thank you. Two questions are raised for what kind of damage should the plaintiff be compensated, the remoteness of damage, what monetary compensation should be should the plaintiff receive in respect of damage which is not too remote. So this is now the mechanics of how you determine how much compensation and this is the measure of damages. Remoteness of damages. Damage is not too remote if it is such as may fairly and reasonably be considered either as not arising naturally 
that is according to the usual course of things from the breach itself, or two, such as may reasonably be supposed to have been in the contemplation of both parties at the time they made the contract, as a probable result of the breach. So Hadley and Baxendale, here the plaintiff's mill shaft broke and had to be sent to the makers at Greenwich to serve as a pattern for a replacement. The defendant agreed to transport the shaft to Greenwich, but in breach of contract delayed delivery causing several days loss of production at the mill. The plaintiff claimed £300 in respect of the loss of profit. Alderson B stated the rule, quoted, and applied the principles as follows. 1. The loss did not arise naturally since the defendant could not foresee that, this, that his delay would stop the mill. It was quite possible that the plaintiff might have had a spare shaft or been able to get one. 2. The loss could not have been contemplated by both parties at the time of the contract as the probable result of the breach. If the defendant had not had been told that delay would stop the mill, such loss would have been in his contemplation and he may then have sought to limit his liability. However, he did not have this information. So Hadley and Baxendale represents the law today and was considered by the House of Lords in Kaufos and Zarnico when all five law lords approved the rule. Although saying that the loss must be contemplated as a real danger or a serious possibility rather than as the probable result of the breach. So all they are doing is just tweaking the language to establish whether there is a link or there's a correlation between the loss suffered and the breach of contract. So if there's no link between the loss suffered and the breach of contract, then you cannot raise the question of monetary compensation for that loss. And that is what we mean when we talk about remoteness of damage and um, the measure of damage really speaking about the quantum, how much money should be paid. So in Kaufos and Zarnico, a ship was chartered to carry sugar from Constanza to Basra. Charter intended to sell the sugar immediately on its arrival. The ship owner did not know this, but he did know that there was a market for sugar at Basra. In breach of contract, the ship owner deviated and arrived nine days late, during which time the market value of the sugar had fallen by about £4,000. The House of Lords unanimously upheld the plaintiff's claim for this amount, approving the ruling Hadley and Baxendale subject to the qualification mentioned above. That is, the loss, the loss must be reasonably and fairly considered as arising naturally from the breach and the loss must be contemplated as a real danger or a serious possibility 
rather than as the probable result of the breach. So this is really a restatement of how you arrive at liability for breach of contract. So to put it in very stark and direct terms, did this deviation by the captain lead to the loss of 4,000 pounds? Had he gone directly to Basra, would he have got top dollar for the sugar? And if the answer to that is in the affirmative, the answer to that is yes, then it follows logically that the loss flows naturally from the breach. So because he diverted, he got there late and the price fell. And therefore liability arises. So the cough force case is interesting in that although there was a roughly equal chance of the price of sugar rising or falling, the fact that it fell was nevertheless foreseeable as a serious possibility. But I would put it in the sense that if it if it if 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 the price had risen there would be no loss. The person would have made more money. And remember that damages only arise if there is a loss suffered. Right? So even without getting into the gymnastics, um, was there a loss? Was that loss caused by the actions, by the breach? When the breach of contract consists of failure to pay a sum of money, and, and, and there's another distinction because I am saying that there's some link to the breach but they are making it a little bit more independent of the breach and saying that you just need to see that there's a serious possibility that if you act in a particular way, loss is likely to be suffered. So when the breach of contract consists of failure to pay a sum of money the general rule is that only the sum of money, not interest or damages, can be recovered. That's the general rule. Now, there are a number of exceptions, and in particular, the rule does not apply to claims for special damages under the second limb of the rule in Hadley and Baxendale. That is, the loss must have been within the contemplation of the parties at the time of the contract as the probable result of the breach. So, in looking at remoteness of damages, and when we talk about remoteness of damages, we're really trying to establish whether the breach or the loss suffered was foreseeable by the parties to the contract. So International Minerals and Chemical Corporation and Helm, a debt was due to be paid to an American plaintiff in Belgian francs. 
between the due date and the judgment date, the value of the Belgian francs as against US dollar had fallen by 40%. It was held that the loss was recoverable since the defendant knew that such a loss was not an improbable consequence of their default. So we are looking at remedies for breach of contract and we're now looking at the measure of damages. The general rule is that the plaintiff recovers his actual loss in respect of damage, which is um, loss suffered, which is not too remote. So there must be some link. He is placed in the same position as if the contract had been formed. Sort of like an insurance claim. You know, when you have a comprehensive insurance, they don't intend to give you a windfall. They really just intend to give you back what you had had before you, you, you had suffered the loss. The case of Thompson and Robinson gun makers. Here, the defendant purchased a standard Vanguard car from the plaintiff and later refused to accept delivery of it. The plaintiff's profit on the sale would have been £61, but the defendant argued that they were not liable for this amount since the profit would still be made when the car was sold to another customer. The court rejected this argument since the supply of this model exceeded the demand. Therefore, if the plaintiff had found another customer, he would have sold a car to him in addition to selling the car to the plaintiff. So they would have sold two cars. Jarvis and Swan Tours. In assessing the award of damages, the court may take into account inconvenience and annoyance. So these are aggravating factors. So in this case, the plaintiff paid. 63 pounds for a two-week winter sport holiday it delivered vastly differed vastly from what was advertised there was very little holiday atmosphere the hotel staff did not speak english and in the second week he was the only guest at the hotel <laughs> Plaintiff recovered £125 damages for his upset and annoyance due to having his holiday spoiled. The defense of contributory negligence cannot be used to justify a proportionate reduction in damages for breach of contract. However, the plaintiff's negligence may result in his claim being defeated. So, to give you some context... There is what is called contributory negligence and usually that is a defense that is raised primarily in, in, in accidents. So if you have a collision, both persons may have been um, wrong but to varying degrees. One party might be 70% wrong, the other party might be 30% wrong. So the court will look to see and apportion who is responsible. So let's say that A sues B for colliding into A. B can now counter sue 
A for contributory negligence because they might say A was not paying attention to where he was going and then the court will look and see whether or not A is 10% contributory negligence, 20% contributory negligence, 30% contributory negligence and make an award in that regard so what it is saying here where breach of contract is concerned you can't raise the defense of contributory negligence but you could raise negligence which is a different um, cause of action entirely right so if, if, if there was a breach of duty of care then in those circumstances you could rely on that and defeat the claim for damages so Lambert and Lewis Plaintiff used a trailer coupling after realizing it was clearly defective. This negligent action will leave the supplier from contractual liability for the loss that occurred as a result of the ensuing accident. Now, here's another important aspect of the law. Not because you may be the innocent party. And your suffered loss mean that you are to allow your loss to get out of hand. You have a duty to minimize or to mitigate your loss. And therefore, we are now looking at mitigation. So the rules pertaining to a claim for damages is subject to the limitation that the plaintiff must do what is reasonable. To mitigate his loss and cannot recover any part of it which the defendant can prove has resulted from failure to mitigate. The plaintiff cannot recover a loss that he ought to have avoided. So in Derbyshire and Warren, plaintiff owned a car of which he was particularly proud. Although it was old, he maintained it in excellent condition. It had a market value of about £85. The car was damaged by defendant's negligence and the plaintiff was advised it would cost him £192 to get it repaired. The plaintiff went ahead with the repairs and claimed £192 from the defendant. Less the money he had received from his insurance company and plus the cost of hiring a car while the repair were carried out. And of course his claim failed because remember that the car is 85 pounds why would you spend 192 pounds to fix it makes no sense the court held that the expenditure on repairs was not justified the plaintiff should have mitigated his loss by buying a replacement vehicle on the open market so the idea is you could go get another 85 dollar car by mitigation it should be noted that mitigation is only relevant to a claim for damages and not a claim for an agreed sum. So again, mitigation applies to damages. Pertaining to affirmation of breach, in which the defendant repudiated a contract on the same day that he had entered into it for the advertising of his business on plates, Attached to litter bins manufactured by the plaintiff. And this is White and Carter Council and McGregor, who just looked at this case. Plaintiff, in spite of repudiation by the defendant, manufactured and displayed the plates as agreed. 
court held that repudiation did not of itself bring the contract to an end and the innocent party could elect to treat it as subsisting, complete his side without the cooperation of the other party and claim the old sum under the contract. So that brings us to liquidated damages and penalties. So these are all remedies, right? So if there's a breach of contract, what remedies do you have available? Unliquidated damages. Where no provision for damages is made in the contract, then the court will assess the damages payable. Liquidated damages, where the parties have agreed in a contract how much is to be payable on a breach, this sum is recoverable if it is liquidated damages. So you know exactly how much money you're going to get. And it must be what they call a genuine pre-estimate of the loss, but not if it is a penalty. So they are making a distinction now between what is a genuine pre-estimate of the loss as opposed to what would constitute a penalty. An amount fixed as a threat to prevent breach. Where it is a penalty, the plaintiff can only recover his actual loss in respect of damage, which is not too remote. So in Lambdon Trust and Horrell, the defendant purchased a car from the plaintiffs on higher purchase. The higher purchase price was £558. After he had paid £302, the defendant defaulted and the plaintiff repossessed the car and resold it for £270. So in total, they would have recovered £572. A provision in the higher purchase agreement provided that if it was terminated due to the higher's default, the hire must pay as compensation the difference between the sums paid in this case, £302 and £425, which is £123. Since the plaintiff had already received £572 for the car, which is the £302 plus the £270, the defendant objected to their claim for £123. Court held that the compensation clause was a penalty, and since the plaintiff had already received more than the original price of the car, the defendant was not liable to pay him any more compensation. The effect of the plaintiff's clause could be more vividly seen if the defendant had defaulted after payment of ten pounds. Defendant could have claimed 415 under the compensation clause and resold the car probably for at least 500 pounds, giving them a total compensation of 915 pounds. Fact is that when you purchase something on higher purchase, you're going to pay three to ten times more than what the sticker price is over time. Clearly, this is not a genuine pre-estimate of loss. Penalties. Whether a particular sum is liquidated damages or penalty depends on the party's intention. And there we go again with the magic word, tensions. 
The words used by the parties are not conclusive evidence of intention. And we have seen this principle before. And the court will look at the following test. Is the sum stipulated extravagant in comparison to the greatest loss which could have flowed or followed from the breach? If so, it is a penalty. So in Kemble and Farin, an actor's contract provided that if either he or the theatre management broke their contract, then the party in breach must pay the other £1,000 as liquidated damages. This was held to be a penalty clause because it was disproportionate both to the actor's daily fees of £3, 6 shillings and 8 pence and to the greatest possible loss that would result from the breach. Where a lump sum is payable on the occurrence of certain events, some of which are serious and some of which are not, lump sum is presumed to be a penalty. But where a precise estimate of the consequences of the breach is impossible, court may regard the lump sum as a genuine pre-estimate. And this is really the difference between what is considered to be liquidated damages and a penalty, right? So the court frowns on penalties, but it will uh, grant orders in relation to um, liquidated damages. Dunlop Pneumatic Tire Co. and New Garage and Motor Co. The plaintiff offered a trade discount to dealers who promised not to sell below a certain list price since not to exhibit any of the goods and to pay $5 by way of liquidated damages and not as a penalty for each breach of the agreement. This clause was held to be enforceable since £5 was not excessive was not an excessive figure to place on a breach, the actual loss from which would be impossible to forecast. So that now takes us to other common law remedies, action for an agreed sum. A contract will often provide for the payment by one party of an agreed sum in exchange for performance by another. So for instance, if you're in an employment contract and they say you must give them one week notice, one month notice if you're quitting or one month notice if them find you and they want to get you out immediately, they usually give you one month's pay in lieu of notice. So that's an example of an agreed sum. So goods sold for a fixed price if the duty to pay the price has arisen, the innocent party may sue the contract breaker for the agreed sum. This action is different from an action for damages since the plaintiff recovers the agreed sum neither more or less. Therefore, questions of remoteness and measures cannot and do not arise. We have already met quantum merit when we looked at acceptance of part performance and we looked at um, prevention of performance where work has been done or accepted under a void contract and where one party abandons a contract 
So as in the case of Palanch and Colburn, where the plaintiff was prevented from performing his agreement to write a book on costume and armor, and your colleague earlier had asked what's the difference between quantum merit and um, damages, and equally, we don't talk about remoteness here, nor do we talk about measure of damages, right? The injured party, instead of claiming damages, may claim payment for what has been done under the contract so damages might be more than what has been done under the contract right it could be for the entire contract price for all who knows and there you might get a little extra if there are aggravated circumstances so that is known as a quantum merit um, claim merit. so quantum merit translates how much is it worth so this is a Latin phrase, and that is what it translates into. The claim is not based on the original contract, but an implied promise by the other party arising from the acceptance of executed consideration. So the point is that some consideration has occurred in respect to the performance of the contract. Right? That now brings us to equitable remedies. So there are three types of equitable remedies for breach of contract, and we have met some already. Specific performance is one. Injunction is another. And rescission and rectification that we already met. Specific performance. Specific performance is a decree issued by the court which orders the defendant to carry out his obligations. So in other words, let's say you're buying uh, property and you have done all that there needs to be done to conclude the sale but then the vendor changed their mind and they're not selling you the property again. As long as they have fulfilled your obligation, you can now go to the court and, and, and sue them for specific performance which is to sell you the property. So it is a remedy which is discretionary, although the discretion must be exercised within well-established principles, not normally awarded if damages would be adequate remedy. So if compensation, monetary compensation was sufficient, but if you if say you want the property, you don't really want your money back, you really want to get that property, then you would sue for specific performance. It is most likely to be awarded in contract for sale of land. I just made the example of property there. Land, same thing. Must be available to either party. So either side could sue for specific performance. Thus, it is not available to an infant in respect of a contract not enforceable against him. So this now brings in the, 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 the element here of capacity, right? Implicitly. It is not available in respect of certain types of contract. Those requiring personal services, such as butler, or contract which require extensive supervision, such as a building contractor. And that is short treatment. Nice area that can come on a multiple choice. Injunction. There are four types of injunction. A mandatory injunction, prohibitory injunction, Mareva injunction, or what they now call a freezing order, an Anton Pillar injunction, or a search order, 
So a mandatory injunction orders a person to take action to undo a breach of contract. Example, to take down an advertising sign erected in breach of contract. Or to tear down a building that never get the approvals. To take down an advertising sign. Prohibitory injunction is an order of the court which prohibits a person from doing something Example, prevention of the breach of reasonable restraint of trade. And remember, we looked at illegality. So if somebody enters into a contract to restrain trade, you can get an injunction against them to prevent them from doing it. Orders a defendant not to remove a specific asset from the jurisdiction of the court. And this is usually like bank accounts, property titles um, any asset that can be liquidated and moved out you freeze these assets it is a temporary injunction granted when a case is pending in court its purpose being to prevent the defendant from nullifying the effect of a judgment which the plaintiff is likely to obtain it is ancillary to other proceedings which must have commenced by the time the injunction is granted. And by ancillary it means you don't bring a Mariva injunction by itself. You sue the person. So for instance, let's say you have an employee and that employee has embezzled and then they take the money and they buy a house and they buy a car and you're suing to recover the money then you can now take out a Mariva injunction or a freezing order to prevent them from accessing their bank account or from removing these monies or selling these properties and moving the money offshore. Anton Pillar injunction authorizes the inspection, photographing, custody or removal of documents or property. This injunction will only be granted in exceptional circumstances. The inspection or removal normally being carried out by the applicant's attorney at law, accompanied by police officers. So, you know, there is a celebrated um, arrest. Uh, what, it's two years now. Uh, you saw people come out with sheets covered over them. So, in circumstances like that, you would get... Um, this type of injunction and that will now allow the police to go to the homes and to seize computers and to take hard drives and search for them for information that they think might be useful in evidence in court and then of course the, the equitable remedies of rescission and rectification of which you are very familiar so rescission and rectification are remedies invoked by the court to relieve a party from the effects of his mistake where the common law would hold him to the contract. Rescission will be granted if the party seeking to rescind is not at fault and justice can be done to the other party by imposing conditions. Rectification will be applied to rectify an agreement where there has been a mistake not in the actual agreement, but in its reduction to writing. And that's it. So we have concluded contract.
So when we return, 